Well, church, uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And as you are turning there, I'm going to start out this morning by letting you guys have a little bit of look into our, our home life, uh, what's going on in the, in the Walker family. Um, there's, been a, there's been a battle that has been going on at home for the last few months that Brittany and I have started to become a bit weary of. You see, there's this bird that has been trying to build a nest on our front door light. And especially in the spring, I mean, it was relentless. Just every few hours, almost a full nest was fully formed out there. And it took Brittany and I, you know, tag teaming it and every few hours going out and knocking down the nest with a broom or with a leaf blower, trying to get rid of it so a fully formed nest wouldn't be there on the front light because we knew once the fully formed nest was there, then soon after there would be eggs and then eggs turn into birds and birds defecate on everything in the front entryway. And we we have some experience in this because last year we had a wreath on our front door and a bird made a nest in it and a whole family moved in to the point where we couldn't even use our front door because if we opened it, it was like opening the birds into our home. And so they had taken control of that whole front entryway. We had people coming through the garage or around back, you know, in through a side window so that the birds didn't know what we were doing. And this year, we were like, enough is enough. We are taking back control of our home. But there has been a battle that has, has been going on. There's been a, this, this battle. And, and in the springtime, we actually did achieve a victory. We felt like we finally broke the will of this one bird, and it, it finally moved on. But then a few days ago, a young bird probably in the, in the family line of this last bird, started building this nest once again and squawking at us from the tree anytime we came and removed it. And we assume there's some sort of uh, familial vendetta or revenge that he's kind of coming after us now out of honor for his parents. But it's been tough. It's been tough, right? There's this battle that keeps happening. Just when we thought we had a victory, another bird is now attacking. And while that might seem like a seemingly insignificant example, there is a similar battle that is taking place within our hearts for who and what will control us. There are warring desires going on in our hearts and minds, and those desires will lead to us making decisions and choices that will either serve God or serve our sin. And you say, well, hey, I'm a, I'm a free man. I'm a free woman, right? That's what we're celebrating this weekend, right? That there's, there's this freedom here. But listen, even though you are free to make decisions and choices, you ultimately decide and choose based on the desires that are going on in your heart. And it is often which desire is winning and reigning in your heart that leads you to then make decision, decisions and choices in your life. 
Now this morning, we'll be preaching from the the last half of Romans 7 and into the glorious verse in Romans 8, verse 1, that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are just continuing to work through our series in Romans, preaching verse by verse through it. But we have come to a portion of Romans 7 that admittedly there have been some different views and interpretations on it. And so we want to, I just want to acknowledge that right from the start. There are many smart, intelligent, God-fearing, Jesus-loving people who see this text of Scripture a little bit differently, okay? Some people have seen these verses, and they have thought that Paul in these verses is referring to his experience before he became a believer, and that this portion of Scripture is speaking about the experience of an unbeliever, Some people see this as Paul speaking as a representative of all Jewish people who had received the law but hadn't received Christ. Some people have interpreted this as Paul speaking about someone who has come under the conviction of the Spirit but has not yet been converted or received the Spirit. Some people have interpreted this as Paul speaking about the experience of a believer, but an unhealthy believer. And therefore, we should not be encouraged to imitate what he's talking about here, but see this as an example of an unhealthy believer. And finally, others, and probably what has been the majority of you throughout church history, read this text and see this as Paul speaking in the present tense about his experience as a believer someone who loves and follows Jesus, who has the indwelling Holy Spirit, and yet has different desires battling for control of his decisions and choices. And so that's how my week has been. If you wondered, you know, how this week was for me, it was wrestling through all these people that really are knowledgeable. They love the Lord and they are true believers, but have differing views on this passage of scripture. And I wanted to come into this text, not with any uh, having already made up my mind, but trying to understand how people are seeing this differently, to come in with just a bit of a humility and understanding that that. No one person has ever fully gotten their mind around God and his word and fully figured him out. But this last view is the view that I would most closely align with, and that's how I'm going to preach it this morning. Now, here's, here's what I would say, uh, that, that, that this is a, a passage of Scripture describing the experience of a believer, a healthy believer with desires warring in their heart. But here is what I will say about these verses as we go through. I'll, I'll lay all my cards on the table to, to start out. Uh, that I believe these verses give us a normal but not complete picture of the Christian life. All right, I do believe he's, he's speaking of his experience as a believer, and Paul was a pretty healthy, mature believer, and he gives us, though, a normal but not complete picture of the Christian life. Romans 7 is most certainly not the complete picture of the Christian life, and to speak of it that way would be to do a disservice to Romans 7. Romans 7 is given along with Romans 6 and 8 and the entire letter of Romans. And so we have to understand the context, all right? If you haven't been with us throughout Romans, let me, by way of uh, uh, introduction, and for those of you that have been with us, by way of reminder, let me just paint in broad brushstrokes where we are at in the book of Romans. Paul in Romans 1, 2, and 3 has tried to show us that all human beings have fallen short of our initial God-given calling. 
that we've all sinned against God and that we rightly stand condemned in his sight, deserving of his wrath, that we are all sinners in need of a savior. And he did this by addressing both the Gentiles and the Jews in the congregation and showing how both are rightly under the wrath of God. And so in Romans 1, he directs his attention to those with more of a Gentile background and the ones that were more outwardly rebellious, who had rejected God and his ways. But then in Romans 2, he turns his attention to, to those with a Jewish background or a more religious background, those who had, had made some prideful attempts at keeping the law, and they were, but he showed that they were just as unrighteous as the Gentiles. And then in Romans 3 through 5, he lays out the glorious gospel of grace, that we must receive a rightness with God, a righteousness from God, in order to be right with God. It cannot be a rightness we conjure up in ourselves. It has to be through faith in Christ that we receive the righteousness of Christ, and we are now right with God. But then in Romans 6, He starts addressing believers, likely with more of the Gentile background, and he exhorts them to not go back into sin so that grace may abound. Sin enslaves you. Don't go back to living like a slave experientially, even if you're not a slave legally. In Romans 7, though, now he turns his attention to the believers prone to pride and self-righteousness and shows them how the law won't win the war over the desires of our flesh. The law won't do it. And then in Romans 8, he brings it all back together again, reminding us of the glorious gospel, pointing us to the gift of the Holy Spirit and the, the, the victorious life that we have in Christ. And so Romans 7 is right in the middle of him teaching us about how once we've received the righteousness of God, what that righteousness should be producing in us, right? It should not cause us to go back to slavery and to sin. Instead, it should cause in us a war, with our sinful desires. But the law is not going to be powerful enough to win the war over our sinful desires. Now listen, for those of you that don't see Romans 7 in that exact way, that is, that is okay, but this is how I would encourage you today. Nothing I preach here this morning will be contrary to what we absolutely know to be true from other parts of Scripture. I'm not coming up with any doctrine purely on Romans 7, from Romans 7 this morning. In fact, Galatians 5, which I would say everyone is in agreement on what Paul is referring to here and the experience of all believers, he says in Galatians 5.17, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. All right, so we can acknowledge there's a bit of some differing views of Romans 7. You can argue that maybe this isn't going to be the the slam dunk text for you to talk about the desires of the flesh warring against the desires of the spirit, but it's still true. All right, it's still true. This is God's truth, and I believe that it is here in Romans 7. And so as we we go about uh, this text, let's first, let's go to the Lord. Let's ask for his help uh, that his truth might be proclaimed this morning. And that by the grace of God the Father, by the power of the Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ, we might make war on the desires of the flesh this morning. Let's pray. Let's ask for his help. Father, we, we do need your help. We need your help, Lord. We ask, Lord, that even as we come to a passage of Scripture, that, that believers might understand and interpret differently Lord, we ask that we would be on guard against the desires of our flesh being aroused by this. 
Lord, help your truth be proclaimed this morning. May you enable us, God, to fight and battle and put to death well the sin that still remains in our hearts. Father, you are the one who gives us relief when we are in distress. Oh God, may each of us ponder in our hearts this morning who you are and what you are up to, and may we put our trust in you. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, and we ask that you would put more joy into our hearts this morning, that our hearts might experience the peace that you alone give to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Romans 7, verse 13. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are at war within us. But listen, church, the spirit will be victorious through our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right? So this is point number one. If you're taking notes this morning, point number one is that the awareness of war within helps us understand ourselves better. All right? The awareness of war within helps us understand ourselves better. Look with me at Romans 7, verse 13. He writes, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. All right, now this is, we did cover this last week. All right, last week we covered verse 13 and you'll remember that Paul is in the midst of explaining the purpose of the law of God, right? And he, he, he taught us that we are not to set the law aside, right? We are not to shoot the messenger, so to speak. We learned that the law of God still serves a great purpose in our lives. It diagnoses sin that is still in us. It stirs up even sin and it magnifies sin and it ultimately leads us to Jesus so that Jesus can definitively deal with sin. And so the law is not sin. No, the law is holy, righteous, and good and has led us to Christ. Amen? The law has led us to Christ. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. All right, he starts out by saying here, the law is spiritual, meaning that the law is of the Holy Spirit and it cuts deep below the physical to the spiritual, right? This is what Jesus was showing us when he taught on the Sermon on the Mount, right? He was trying to show us how the law is spiritual, how it cuts deeper than maybe what we just saw it as it, for what it was on the surface, right? I mean, you remember Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with a brother is liable to judgment, right? You see what he's doing. He's showing that the law is spiritual. It cuts to the heart. And by his standards and by the real meaning of the law, he's exposed that we all actually have murderous hearts. Even if we've never done anything with our hands to, to play that out, we all have murder in our hearts when we become angry with a brother or sister. And now in verse the law is spiritual. Verse 14, when Paul says that he is sold under sin, 
All right. Now, this is certainly one of the arguments that people have to use that, that Paul is speaking of his experience as an unbeliever. But I would say, no, Paul is here speaking in the present tense. He's speaking in the present tense. And we learned already back in Romans 6 that someone can live like a slave experientially, even when they are no longer a slave legally. All right. And so Paul here, he has these warring desires going on in his heart between the flesh and the spirit. And when the flesh gains ground, he starts to live once again like a slave to sin. But he doesn't fully understand himself, right? He doesn't fully understand his heart and his desires here. And what's so glorious about this passage is is that it does help us understand ourselves a little bit more. I mean, men men and women, we like to joke about how we don't understand one another right? But the real problem most of the time is that we don't even understand ourselves. That's usually the problem, right? Why did I lash out at that person? Why do I keep going down this path of sin? Why was I so selfish back there? Why did I say those harsh things to that person? Why, why did everything within me have to speak up so everyone knew that it was my idea, not theirs, so I can get the credit? Like, and then you look back and you're like, what, what was I doing? I don't understand myself. Why can't I just let that go? We don't understand ourselves. And that's the case here. The Spirit of God through the law is revealing more of what Paul doesn't understand that is in his heart. The Spirit, through the law, is revealing more and more of the sinful desires that are competing for control of Paul's decisions and choices. The longer someone follows Christ, the more and more they become aware of their sin. And as they come to understand some of the things that are going on in their heart, the more they come to learn about themselves, the more they realize how much they still don't know about themselves right? I mean, this was my experience in the medical field. The more, the more I learned, the more I realized I did not know. And this is true of our own hearts as God starts to expose sin as we walk with Christ year after year, day after day. More of it's getting upearthed and, and, and uncovered. But at the same time, the longer we walk with him, the more we realize we don't understand the depths of sin that is still in our hearts. And you see, we need God to help us understand ourselves better. We need him through his word and through his spirit and through his people to bring us some more self-awareness as to what is happening in our hearts and our minds. And we need to ask him. This is, this is something that you, can, that you should take away from this, this sermon this morning, that, that you do need to have times throughout the day that you go to the Lord in prayer, and maybe you pray Psalm 139, 23 and 24, right? Maybe this could be a verse you put in your pocket or you have marked in your Bible, and throughout the day you're ready to go to God, and you just cry out to him and say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, this is a healthy part of following Christ, church, is to have times of asking the Lord to search our hearts, to bring to the surface what we need to confess, to bring to the surface desires that are not of Him, 
so that we can understand ourselves a little bit better, so that we can understand why we are making certain decisions and choices each and every day. Go to God and ask God to search your heart, to show you the depths of it, to show you what still needs to be confessed and turned from. Now let's, let's stop for a moment before we continue through the passage and let's for a moment consider what Paul is probably wrestling with here. Right? I think sometimes we assume wrongly of what Paul is wrestling with. Like Paul probably wasn't tempted to fall back into the party scene or licentious living. Right? Paul was raised very religious. He took pride in obeying the law of God. And our uh, Boltman, a German theologian back in the early 1900s, he suggested that what Paul is likely doing that he doesn't want to do is he's falling back into the pride and self-righteousness that one feels as a result of keeping the law. Well, that's, that's, that could be, we're speculating here a little bit, but that could be most likely what Paul is falling back into. He's falling back into this pride and self-righteousness that one feels as a result of keeping the law. Which, which makes sense, right? In Romans 6, he's, it's all about don't go back to living under sin. Romans 7 is all about don't go back to living under the law. Don't go back to living pridefully under the law. Paul's got some warring desires going on in his heart, and he's probably got a warring desire in his heart that wants to take pride in his ability to keep the law and look down on everyone else who can't do it. Instead of humbly receiving and resting in the righteousness of Christ. What's your motivation for following Christ, church? Has it started to turn in on itself? That's what sin does. It causes us to turn in on ourselves. Maybe you started following Christ for, for his glory, but sin has started to turn you in on yourself. It's made it all about you now. Don't, don't we oftentimes slip back into being motivated by pride and self-glory instead of a love for Christ? And oh, that the Spirit would... Help us understand ourselves better this morning. That we would not allow our sinful desires of the flesh to turn us in on ourselves. To pursue obedience and following Christ, but all of a sudden now not for his glory, but for our own. For the pride and self-righteous feeling we get from it instead of motivated by a love for Christ. Now, here's one error that this passage and others help us guard against. Some, not, not all who see this differently, but, but, but some have wrongly taught that a believer can get to a point where they no longer struggle with any sin. Not just that you can have victory over a specific sin, which is what I believe, but that as you as, you as a Christian, you shouldn't struggle with any sin. Like some, some teach this, that, that, that there's this kind of extra blessing of grace that all of a sudden makes you uh, completely sinless and perfect. And this is a dangerous teaching, church. 
Yes, Jesus has paid the penalty for sin. Yes, he's released us from the power of sin. We can have victory over sin. But until Christ returns and until we are resurrected and glorified with him, the presence of sin will still remain. And therefore, the battle with sin must still be waged. And we must, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, through faith in Christ, make war on the sin that remains. We must understand that the war of desires will continue to take place. Yes, we must grow in holiness, but once we defeat one bird, there's another one coming trying to build a nest. And so here's the danger of this sinless perfectionist view of a Christian that has crept into some churches and to teaching that you have likely been exposed to. Here's the danger. Think of it this way, okay? Think of it, I'm going to use a medical example, all right? Uh, In the medical field, most people want to go to the safest hospital. Agreed? Is that something that you guys care about? You want to go to the safest hospital. Uh, And so let's, let's say you pick the hospital to go to based upon the lowest number of medical mistakes that are reported, right? The numbers come out, the hospital with the least reported medical mistakes, right? They were supposed to do surgery on an arm, They did it on a leg, you know, whoops, they made a mistake, right? It happens, okay? Now, the problem with trying to pick the hospital with the lowest number of medical mistakes is that the research shows that the hospitals with the lowest number of medical mistakes reported are actually some of the most unsafe hospitals to go to because it's not that the medical mistakes aren't occurring at those hospitals, it's that the environment is such that the workers are extremely afraid to speak up. You see? When you preach wrongly that Christians should no longer struggle with sin at all, and when you neglect to openly and honestly make war against the sinful desires of the flesh, you create an environment where people are fearful to speak up. They think that I have to pretend and perform. And that's not the environment of a healthy church. Looks good on the surface, a lot of stuff not getting dealt with underneath. And that's not a healthy environment for a household either. Have you given those in your city group and those in your church and those in your own home the space and the environment that they can admit and confess that they are struggling with some sinful desires? Right? I mean, sometimes we're friends with people for so long, years and years and years, and then like 10 or 20 years down the road, something gets unearthed that is just so not of the Lord, that is so sinful, that was there all along but never talked about. And we think, what, what in the world happened there? Now, certainly both sides are to blame. The person that never wanted to confess it, never wanted to bring it to the surface. But what about the person who, like, like what, what was I doing that created such an environment that someone felt like they couldn't talk about the fact that they had struggle with sin, that there were desires warring in their hearts. And church, we have to be a church where there is room to wrestle here. 
The other, the other day, I was actually convicted uh, after, after service, I stopped a couple young boys from wrestling because as we've grown and as this building seems to get smaller, I don't know if that's actually happening or not, but I told the boys, hey, there's no room to wrestle here. I'm all for wrestling, but there's no room to wrestle here. All right. Now, now, young boys, that is that is true in the physical aspect of things. All right. There's probably not room to wrestle in here right after service. But it but it hit me like it hit me on the heart from the Lord, I, I believe, like. But as a church. With the, the desires that are warring within us. Is there room to wrestle here? Are we giving people room to wrestle with some of the desires that are, they're making war on that are going on in their heart and mind. And I do want us to be a church that there is room to wrestle here where we don't have to pretend and perform, but we can celebrate Christ and we can make war together on the sin that still remains in our hearts. We all have desires that are at war in our hearts that are either leading us to make decisions that are serving God or serving sin and ourselves. And when we are fearful to speak up, what we do is we isolate ourselves and become even more prone to the attack from the desires of the flesh, right? We need one another because by ourselves, we are a wreck, We need one another. We all have warring desires going on in our hearts and minds. But listen, Christ is delivering us from those. But we're not delivered from all of them yet. And whether it's in the church or in a home, we cannot just be encouraging compliance to certain standards. We must be preparing one another to combat sinful desires that are there. Right? That's, that's what I want the main goal of the future men that we're raising in our home to be, not to just simply be encouraging compliance to my rules. I want to equip them to combat the sin in their own life. Too many churches and homes are raising actors instead of warriors. The process of discipleship should not primarily be teaching someone how to perform better. It should be getting at how to fight sin better. And so you do not have to live in denial or guilt and shame here. I believe that God's word helps us understand ourselves a little bit better, that we have warring desires within us. I think it helps explain us a little bit more, helps us understand ourselves a little bit more. But, but, this does not define you anymore. This is point number two, if you're you're keeping notes. The presence of sin in your life helps explain you but it does not define you. The presence of sin in your life helps explain you, but it does not define you. Look back at verse 18. Romans 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
Now, what Paul is doing here is he is distinguishing between who he is and the sin that still remains in his flesh. Now, in God's word, when we find the word flesh, it's not always referring to our fallen nature or our propensity to sin. But typically, when Paul uses it and contrasts it between the spirit and the flesh or the mind and the flesh, that is what he's referring to. He's referring to the part of us, because we have been born separated from God by sin, there is a part of our flesh that has a propensity to sin. Now, we learned in Romans 6 that this was crucified with Christ, right? Romans 6, 6 says, we know that our old self, the old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, our sinful flesh was crucified, but it is still being brought to nothing. This is in process. It's a part of living in the already but not yet kingdom of God, a kingdom that is already here but not yet fully realized. And just like Adam did not die instantly when he disobeyed God and ate from the tree, so too our sinful flesh, it has been crucified with Christ, but it did not die instantly. It is still being brought to nothing. But it does not define us. It is not our core identity as to who we are any longer. Which is why it's so important that Paul distinguishes between us and our sinful flesh. He's setting the table, so to speak, as to what our true identity is that he's going to get into in chapter 8. But I can't leave you hanging here. We got to go. I'll just skip ahead to Romans 8, verse 14. He's going to tell us our true identity, our true thing that defines us. He says in, in Romans 8, verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's our true identity, church. That's what now defines us. Not the sin that we're still battling. No, that, that explains us. That helps us understand us but it does not define us. Who we truly are is who we are in Christ. We are sons and daughters of God. And this is important for us to know and remember and cling to as we go to war against the sinful desires of the flesh because we have to remember that we are not defined by our wins or losses but instead who we are in Christ. This is something that I've tried to start putting together as I've coached uh, the boys in some sports, uh, trying to help them deal with both winning and losing, trying to help form their character and those of their teammates. And so uh, future men in the front row, I'm going to try something here. You tell me what you think, okay? This might be what I use in our, in our future sports, all right? And, and that is, do not become prideful in your wins, do not despair in your losses because neither one defines you. You are walkers. You are my sons. And that has more meaning and significance as to the direction of your life than one loss or one win. Do not become prideful in your wins 
Do not despair in your losses. And I I think the same advice I can give to followers of Christ who are waging war against the sinful desires of the flesh. All right, church, so hear me on this. Do not become prideful in your wins. Do not despair in your losses. Neither one defines you. You are a child of God. And that has more meaning and significance as to the direction of your life than one loss or one win. And I want you for a moment just to prayerfully consider some of the wins and losses from this last week. Ways that you did step out in faith and follow Christ Ways that the Spirit prompted and worked in your heart and you obeyed. But I also want you to consider maybe some of the losses. Temptation that you gave into. Anger that burst out of you. A harsh, hurtful remark that should never have been spoken. Now listen, it is a, it's okay to be encouraged by some wins. It is. We can praise God for them. We can be encouraged and energized by them. And it's okay to learn from our losses, to look back and, and see the ways that, that we want to learn from the situation maybe we put ourselves in and how we can counterattack and battle next time. But listen, some of you keep falling back into living like your justification and your adoption are dependent upon your wins and losses from this past week. And you keep doing what Paul probably didn't want to do. You keep falling back into living like your justification and your adoption are dependent upon your wins and losses. And that is not true. We're getting ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper. There are no scorecards up here on the tables. There's only Christ. We do not ask you to consider wins and losses, and then if you are worthy, come to the table. We say, no, Christ is worthy. Come to the table. You are right with him because you are in him. Through faith in him, you are in Christ. You are justified. You are adopted. You are sons and daughters of God. And yes, we encourage you to now go live like it, but your justification and adoption are not dependent upon your wins and losses. That is not what defines you. Christ defines you. Who you are in Christ defines you. That is your true identity. And so while some people will teach that the experience of Romans 7 is kind of a one-and-done experience, that then you move into Romans 8 and, and uh, you're always you know, just enjoying the Spirit constantly, I think they missed the point that Romans 7 is actually a recurrent experience that we will experience throughout our lives. But an equally bad mistake people make with this text is kind of the opposite end of the pendulum, and people wrongly think that we should always be living in Romans 7. That Romans 7 is somehow an excuse to surrender to sin, or to excuse sin, or just to, in despair, just lay down to sin. But that's not what Paul is doing here, and that is not his posture at all. Look at his posture in Romans 7. His posture is one that is leaning forward into the full deliverance that is coming. 
Look back at Romans 7, 21. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. All right, here, here Paul warns us about being naive to the presence of sin still in our lives. I mean, even when we want to do good things, we see that evil lies close at hand, right? This is why we need to build like Nehemiah had his builders build, and they built with swords strapped to their waist, ready to do war with the enemy and the sinful desires of the flesh. And isn't this true? It's when we start kingdom building that then the enemy and our sinful flesh start to attack us. Don't be naive. When we want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Get the sword ready. Get a verse of scripture ready. As you go about to, to follow Christ, don't be naive. At the very least, you're going to be tempted to become prideful over it, self-righteous over it. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Yes. Amen. Now that verse is so nice, we're going to preach it twice. We're going to preach that one next week as well. But the wrong takeaway, the wrong takeaway would be to read this in a despairing tone. That is not Paul's posture here. He doesn't say, worthless man that I am, I'll never amount to anything, I'm always defeated. He says, wretched man that I am, which that word wretched means to be one who endures toils and troubles. To be wretched means to endure toils and troubles. And you know what? Living life where the presence of sin remains, there will be toils and troubles. And if no one told you that before you came to Christ, you got an incomplete message. Hopefully not a deceptive message, but you got an incomplete message. There will be toils and troubles. But Paul is not despairing in pessimism here. He's leaning in and looking forward to being delivered from this body of death. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, church, the desire for deliverance is a glorious desire. And it's a desire that finds its satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. He is the one who delivers us from Satan's sin and death. And it is a deliverance that is already here, but not yet fully realized. And so we fight sin. And as we do, we cling to him more and more. And he delivers us from the sinful desires of the flesh. You see, church, you need not be discouraged that the Spirit is making you aware of more sin that you need to be delivered from. You need not despair that even though the war is over, that there are more battles to be fought. 
For it's in the struggles that we come to know and enjoy Christ more. So that's our final point this morning, point number three. Embrace and be energized by the struggle because it is in the struggle that we come to know Jesus more. Embrace and be energized by the struggle because it is in the struggle that we come to know Jesus more. In sports, you know, we've already been talking some about sports. I'll just keep going with the sports talk. Um, I've never been in war, actual war. I, was, I didn't serve in the military, so sports is kind of the closest thing I got. In sports, it's pretty easy to tell who is going to be successful at their sport. And it's not the one who just simply likes to win. I mean, everyone likes to win. Everyone is, you know, somewhat sad when they don't win at the game. But you can tell the one who's, who's going to succeed later. It's, 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 the, it's the ones who find pleasure in the process. It's the ones who are energized in the struggle. It's the one who enjoys getting after it in practice and sweating and feeling the burn in their muscles, who, who likes the feeling of doing drills that no one else wants to do and, and, and putting his body through some uncomfortable situations all for the joy of what it will bring. It's the one who gets energized by the struggle because they know what's happening in the struggle. They know that they are being strengthened through the struggle. They know that they are being refined and their skills are being refined in the struggle. And they know the value of the, rela- the relationships that are being built with their coach and teammates. And that relationship is being strengthened and bonded closer together in the struggle. Right? They know, isn't there a camaraderie and a closeness that develops with teammates or comrades that you are training with and going to war with because you are on a similar mission and you're going through hard things together. The difficult practices, the early mornings, working hard together, struggling, competing against a common enemy together, that bonds you together. Now the wonderful thing that I think we need not be discouraged about our struggles, but instead energized and encouraged by them, is that in these struggles, we come to experience deeper fellowship with Christ and his people. And so it is not wrong to experience struggles, church. Before the Spirit came into your life, there was no struggle with sin. Just surrendered to sin. Sometimes there was a guilty conscience, but Most of the time, there was no actual battle with sin until the Spirit moved in. It is the common experience of the believer to experience struggles and to then cry out to Jesus for help. And the reason that we can do this alongside one another with no fear or shame is because of Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through trusting in Christ alone for our life and salvation, we are united to him. And as ones who are in him, there is no condemnation for us. There's no disapproval or wrath or punishment from God for our sin because Christ has taken the punishment in our place. And therefore, as ones who are no longer under condemnation, 
we can bring the sinful desires that are warring in our hearts and warring against us, we can bring them to the light. We can lay them at his feet. We can put them then to death together alongside one another. For it is only Jesus who can deliver us from our sins. It is only Jesus who delivers us from all the desires that are at war within us. And church, we need Jesus to ultimately deliver us from the sinful desires that are at war within us. And therefore, let us not be like the hospitals who are too fearful to share the mistakes being made. Let us not let the enemy isolate us and cause us to be ineffective. This is a unifying thing that we all have different sinful struggles and desires that Christ is in the process of delivering us from. But here's a concern I have. A concern is that some of you aren't fighting at all. You can't think of anything that Christ is putting to death in your life. You have no closeness with Christ being cultivated because you're not on any mission with him. And so I'd ask you this morning as we pray and as we consider coming to the the tables that you might ask God to expose in you maybe one thing this morning that you need to make war on. One sinful desire that you know is there deep in your heart that you need to go to war with Christ on. Make war on the sin that remains in you, church. Ask him to expose it. Confess it to him. Thank him for the forgiveness he has provided you and take your sword, take a verse with you as you go about your work this week and make war on it all day long. But then do not become prideful in your wins. Do not despair in your losses. Neither one defines you. You are a child of God. And that has more meaning and significance as to the direction of your life than one loss or one win. Embrace and be energized and be strengthened in the struggle, for it is in the struggle that you come to know Christ more. Let's pray.